I don't think we can fix what we have. I think we need to scrap what we have and start over, honestly. Um, I think we need to pull all of the MBAs, the people with a master's in business administration, out of any sort of authoritative role in our healthcare system because this is a healthcare system where we're supposed to be providing medical attention and not making money and making cost-based decisions. You know, I know that we've all noticed this here in our local community where there's a big corporation that's taken over the vast majority of primary cares and now PTs and hospitals and all that sort of stuff. And the care, not only for the patients has suffered, but for the actual providers. Um, you know, we have a really hard time keeping doctors and nurses on staff um, because of the working conditions that are being dictated by a large corporate entity that's more bottom line focused than patient care focused or staff care focused. That's our guest, Dr. Nicola Dellinger, a naturopath who loves working with people interested in enhancing their life through optimizing their health. Dr. Nicola received her BA in International Health from Brown University in 1997 and graduated from the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine in Tempe, Arizona in 2004. Stay tuned to hear about the founding principles of naturopathic medicine and our conversation on creating a new model of healthcare. I'm Lisa Byrne. And I'm Lori Gambacorda. We're your co-hosts. Welcome to the Epic Conscious Living Podcast. Transform yourself, impact the world. Educating, empowering, and inspiring you to live a spiritual, healthy, and sustainable lifestyle. Building a community that elevates consciousness for the greater good. We make it easy for you to be epic. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. We appreciate you. And if you haven't gotten a chance, please hit the subscribe button. Welcome to the Epic Conscious Living Podcast, and today we are excited to talk to Dr. Nicola Dellinger of Pura Vida Healthcare. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. I'm really excited to be here. So let's start for our listeners who don't understand or maybe they're not familiar with naturopathic medicine, sort of what is it? And, and give us a little bit of the history and, and background of where naturopathic medicine came from. So, you know, it's funny because naturopathic medicine isn't really this super different philosophy of medicine. And it is all at the same time. So I did four years of undergrad and did my pre-meds. And then I went to four years of medical school um, with clinical rotations and all that sort of stuff. So the basic science part of naturopathic medical school and an allopathic medical school are, are very similar. But the philosophy that was underneath the education is really, really different in that we're trying to understand the part in relation to the whole. And so it's always coming back to whole, the whole person. So even when we were studying pulmonology or cardiology, it was, okay, now you understand how the system works, but how does the system work in the system of the whole? Um, and so naturopathic medicine uses nutrition and homeopathy and herbal medicine, mind-body medicine, physical medicine, um, depending on the state, can use acupuncture and Chinese medicine, hydrotherapy, so we have a lot of different modalities that are based in nature. Um, but again, depending on the state in which we're practicing, for example, I studied in Arizona and I got my for initial license there. I had full DEA pres prescribing privileges in Arizona. I then moved from Arizona to Colorado where we were not licensed when I moved here in 2006. And so I had no rights as a doctor whatsoever. And so it just depends state by state what kind of um, rights that we 
we have. And, and everybody practices a little bit differently. Some people are very, what we would call nature cure based. So this is really, you know, how, how naturopathic doctors have practiced for the past century, um, which is really focusing on lifestyle, diet, you know, herbal medicine, homeopathy, hydrotherapy, those sort of things. And then other people, because licensure and regulations have gotten more expansive, will include things like prolotherapy or injections or pharmaceuticals or minor surgery or, you know, a bunch of other modalities that they can incorporate based on where they are practicing. So it's, you'll see there's a wide variety of us out in society and depending on what we like and what we're interested in, like for me, I was, I'm always been more nature cure based, which is why I happily moved to Colorado into an unlicensed state because I didn't want some of those other parameters that I felt like diluted our, our medicine and also I feel like, you know, MDs who are prescribing medications all day long are just going to be better at it than I am. So I'm going to have my area of expertise around natural medicine. But I think philosophically, this is where the big difference is, is that it's not about natural products are better than pharmaceutical or over-the-counter products. Naturopathic philosophy is really based in what we call the vis medicatrix naturae, which is Latin for the healing power of nature. And so this refers to the innate healing ability that any living creature has within it. So be it me as someone who gets a head cold and takes two or three days of rest and lots of fluid and lots of naps, I'm able to restore homeostasis or um, a gorilla in the jungle who eats a serrated edged leaf when they have parasites because that they know that that leaf will go through their digestive tract and pull all the parasites out. The idea is that when we remove obstacles to cure, then the body, the vis um, can restore balance. And so as naturopathic doctors, our job is to stimulate that vis with the least amount of force needed. And so that sometimes just talk energy medicine, homeopathy, um, you know, herbs are down later in our therapeutic order because they're considered more of an intervention. So it's not about natural versus synthetic. It's about the philosophy that we can all come back to a place of homeostasis if we get out of our own way. And you just mentioned one of the primary principles, the healing power of nature. Can you talk a little bit about the other principles? That sure. Yeah. Has? Yeah. So there's six of them in total. So first do no harm. So that's what we share in common with um, all the other medical professionals. Um, the vis medicatrix naturae, tole causum is treat the cause. So again, it's really looking at what's the underlying imbalance. What's the divine message that the body is trying to transmit through a symptom picture. And then how do we treat that cause? So again, it's not about, I'm going to use this herb to suppress a headache instead of a Tylenol to suppress a headache. It's about why are the headaches coming on in the first place and how do we get to that underlying rationale? Tole totem, which is treat the whole person. And this is, you know, if somebody comes in for headaches, I'm not going to just talk to them about their headache. I'm going to talk to them about sleep and stress and digestion and inflammation and whether or not their knee hurts and, you know, all that sort of thing. Docere and docere is Latin for to teach. And so really we are supposed to be educating the people that we work with so that ultimately my job is to put myself out of a job with each and every patient that I have, because once we're done working together, they are so educated about their own bodies and their own 
path of healing that they no longer need me as a consultant. They are now um, embodied in their own person. What's cool about docere is that's actually the root of doctor. That's where the word doctor comes from is docere. And so doctor has always meant to teach. And that's why there's PhDs and doctors of philosophy and doctors of education. It's because that's supposedly who the teachers are. So that's really um, our primary job, in my opinion, is to teach people about themselves so that they can then make educated choices that support and nourish their systems rather than deplete them. So with teaching, you're providing that prevention aspect versus, hey, the body's mechanistic and let's fix it when it's broken. Yep, absolutely. And then prevenere or pre- prevention is another, is considered the sixth principle. So yeah, prevention is really, really important. And I love the empowerment piece of it. By saying that doctor equals teacher, you know, you're really um, putting the power back in the hands of the person that's coming to see you. It's their responsibility, really, to to make the choices. You mentioned, you know, as you were kind of rattling off some of the things that you would talk to your patients about, one thing you mentioned was digestion. Can we talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about the microbiome and how things differ between naturopathic and allopathic medicine when it comes to looking at pathogens like bacteria and viruses and the difference between how they're viewed? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the joke, you know, cause we had a lot of multiple choice exams in school, <laughs> like a lot. Um, and it was like, if you don't know the answer, check the liver or the gut, you know, like just circle whichever one they're related to, because, you know, whereas in allopathic medicine, there's such a focus on the brain and the heart in naturopathic medicine, the, the crux of our health and the seat of our health is found in the gut. And the liver is part of that as well is part of the gut system. And I think we forget that that's part of it, but it's a giant organ um, that's really attached to your gut and has a big role in that. So as far as the microbiome goes, um, when we talk about the microbiome, it's not just the microbiome in the gut. It's also the microbiome on your skin, in your vaginal tract, in your sinuses. The microbiome is our primary mode of defense and protection and balance in our body. There's actually more genetic material of your microbiome than there is of your own personal genetic material in your body. We are absolutely physiologically more other than self. Um, And I think that's such a fascinating thing to remember that we are actually just kind of inhabiting these bodies that are actually made up primarily of another material. So we, we talk about bacteria and viruses and yeast, they're not necessarily pathogens. So the word pathogen means something that's going to cause us harm. And so we talk about commensal bacteria, which is kind of like your good neighbors. So, okay, we're just buying a home. This home um, in Durango has been a rental apparently for a number of years, and it has not been loved on at all. And our neighbors who are walking by as they're watching us move in and, and remodel, oh, are you renters or are you owners? Well, we're owners. Why do they care? Because when we fix up our house and do the landscape and paint the house and change the windows, it increases the value of the neighborhood, not just financially, but you know, community-wise as well. So if you think about your bacteria and your microbiome in the same way, there's a lot, like hundreds of different species of bacteria that we want that provide that good neighborhood environment. Bifidobacter and the lactobacillus families tending to be some of the strongest and best quote-unquote neighbors that, that we could want to develop relationship with. So when we talk about you know, bugs, there's, we are constantly living 
with viruses and bacteria and yeast and all sorts of things. And it's when it's commensal or helpful, pathogenic or negative, or it can just be neutral. But if it gets out of balance, then it can move from that neutral place into that pathogenic place pretty quickly. So it's a pretty complex system that we're just scratching the surface of understanding from a research or scientific point of view. But I think there's been a lot of folk wisdom and knowledge that's been around for a long, long time. I don't think I've ever gone to an allopathic doctor who said, let's check in on your microbiome. <laughs> See no, because <laughs> there isn't a med for that. And in our, in our age of managed care, if there isn't a medication or a diagnosis code for it, they don't get compensated. Our healthcare system is moving in a direction that prevents looking at the person holistically. So now that you mentioned that, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the healthcare system and policies and how do we fix what we have and how can we as individuals advocate for positive changes? Oh, that's such a good question. I'll start with the first part because I think it's the easier part. I don't think we can fix what we have. I think we need to scrap what we have and start over, honestly. Um, I think we need to pull all of the MBAs, the people with a master's in business administration, out of any sort of authoritative role in our healthcare system because this is a healthcare system where we're supposed to be providing medical attention and not making money and making cost-based decisions. You know, I know that we've all noticed this here in our local community where there's a big corporation that's taken over the vast majority of primary cares and now PTs and hospitals and all that sort of stuff. And the care, not only for the patients has suffered, but for the actual providers. Um, you know, we have a really hard time keeping doctors and nurses on staff um, because of the working conditions that are being dictated by a large corporate entity that's more bottom line focused than patient care focused or staff care focused. And so I think Right now, it feels like running the board of the Titanic just feels like a sinking ship that we just need to acknowledge isn't honestly working for anybody except the stockholders. And that's a problem. Um, so that's my opinion on, you know, kind of what to do with the current medical system. And now I've lost the second part of the question. <laughs> just how as individuals can we advocate um, yeah. advocate for positive changes? I mean, yeah. I mean, there's been some really interesting legislation, especially in Colorado coming through. We've been trying to create um, a more equitable healthcare market and, and move out of these individualized um, insurance companies and go to essentially a more socialized system. Um, if you're in support of that, I think it's really important to you know, speak to that. I think you're also speaking with your dollars. I can't tell you how many people are still participating in the insurance system and then they complain bitterly about how much it costs, how little service they get, but then they don't have any extra money to spend on the therapeutics that they actually want to receive, or they don't access medical care because of the copays. And so I think once we stop participating in the broken system, we are no longer contributing complicitly to saying that this is not a crisis. And once insurance companies stop making the money off of us, then there's going to be a forced change. And just understanding that as someone myself who pays, you know, I'm, like, I'm a cash pay patient, that you can negotiate with people before you come in and you can call ER1 and ER2, or you could call radiology 
and say, hey, how much does it cost? And what's wild is that they'll be like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) This is the only industry where I'm asking for a service and no one has a price tag for me. And if I talk to three different people, I'm going to get three wildly variant price tags. And if I pay for that service before I come in, I'm going to pay about 20% of what they're going to bill me if they if I leave there without paying and then getting a bill later on in the mail. Your bill is going to be exorbitantly more than it would have been had you just paid ahead of time um, or pay at time of service or pay after. There's three different tiers of billing. And so just understanding the game a little bit and you know, kind of taking it from there, I think is, is, is another way of doing it as well. I think that's probably a shocking statement that you made for people to, to realize, huh, I might be able to actually negotiate with a medical provider or a hospital or something like that. So absolutely. I mean, and that's, I mean, if you were to need a hospital for whatever reason, they've got an entire department that doesn't think that assumes they're not going to see a dime once you leave. And so if you want to pay a time of service and put, you know, it on a credit card, you know, I have a couple credit cards. I just keep wide open in case I have something like this because <laughs> they want, you know, $10,000. They're, they're not, they're going to knock off 50, $50,000 to get 10 because of all the money they're going to have to invest in getting any of the money from me, you know, and billing and chasing me up and collections and all that stuff. It's just, it's worth it to them to get paid a smaller percentage now than it would be to have this drag out over the next 10 years. So I want to bring one of the principles of naturopathic medicine into this current discussion, which is prevention. Mm-hmm. And there is not as much money to be made from healthy people. And so I feel like the system is naturally resistant to what I would call true prevention. I think the allopathic definition of prevention in- includes, you know, your your mammograms and your your various tests and things like that. Uh, but true prevention and looking at the whole person is not really conducive to the bottom line. So, so talk a little bit about the concept of prevention and mm-hmm. if, if we are scrapping and building over how we make that and make the true health of the population the real priority. Okay. So I'm actually going to go ahead and disagree with your first statement that prevention, people can't make money off of prevention. The places that insurance companies and healthcare facilities are losing the money the most is in the ER, Right. Um, because that's where we're seeing uninsured, underinsured, or the most expensive procedures. And so we could actually save trillions of dollars a year by seeing people earlier on in a pathology and having people who are not afraid to access medical care because they either are underinsured, uninsured, or don't want to pay their copay. So they put something off that could have been handled inpatient or outpatient, you know, in a primary care setting. And now they're in an emergent situation, which is costing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on what's going on, you know, cancer, heart disease, all these chronic diseases that if we came in earlier, we have much better chances of treating, um, actually end up saving the healthcare companies a lot of money. You know, we don't, we're not really, people aren't really making a ton of money in primary care. And what's happening in our primary care model where people are, you know, doctors are expected to see 30 to 45 patients a day. 
um, is that they're not getting great care. And so they're needing more and more visits or they're getting referred to specialists when a primary who had 20 minutes to talk to the person and get the whole picture might be able to sort something out rather than referring to neurology and ENT um, because now we're going up and up the price scale. So I actually think preventative medicine is incredibly cost-saving across the board. My very first job as a naturopathic doctor was in Phoenix. I worked in an HIV wellness center and we were grant funded. And so all of our patients got to come in for free and um, receive their supplementations up to a certain amount per month for free we were really, really successful and our people were doing really well. So guess what? They're going to cut the grant. So we did um, a patient satisfaction survey and just kind of an anecdotal, you know, how have you been feeling kind of thing. And we got our grant cut. So the next year we changed the, the research that we did and actually looked at outcomes, how many ER visits, how much cost of medications, antiretroviral therapy is incredibly expensive. You know, were they minimizing their medications or having to go up on medications or stay the same? And we were saving on average $20,000 per patient per year. And then we got our grant totally cut. So a lot of our folks, we saw weekly for acupuncture and IVs or nutritional counseling, um, they were taking supplements on the regular. It's just a totally different model that we do maintenance. But if you talk to somebody about their car, like, well, yeah, you get your oil changed every, however many thousand miles you get your, you know, every 5,000 miles, you get your oil changed, you know, every 20,000 miles, you get your tires changed, you know, you do, and, you know, and, and there's certain mileage points along the way where you do the transmission flush and you do the other things that the mechanic does. I don't know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but most of us do that. We maintain the car, we change the oil, we change the air filter preventatively. And if we don't, we know we're going to have a five to $10,000 bill in our hand that we could have handled with a $75 oil change. I can't honestly give you any insight around why we take better care of our cars than our, than our person. But I think that that's, we can use like the mechanic model to think about preventative care and realize that it pays off everywhere else. It pays off. Yes. It pays off for the individual. Mm -hmm. When, when I said money's not to be made, I'm, I'm kind of referring to this, what's, what has really become sort of a medical industrial complex. It's if their concern is the bottom line, then those higher priced diagnostic tests and those higher priced specialists are actually driving the bottom line. So that's mm -hmm. what I mean when I say, yeah. Yeah. you know, I'm not sure that public health and the health of individuals is really the priority right now in the system that we have. I'd, oh, I'd yeah. like to see it be in the system yeah. that that we create in the future. <laughs> right. No, I no, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm with you 100%. But those MRI machines or CT machines or surgery rooms, those are all incredibly expensive. So if we could intervene beforehand, you're actually saving money and not having to buy more and more of those machines and have more and more of those equipments. You know, I think at this point, we have more specialists in the country than primary care. That's not boding well, right? Because then we're accessing higher levels of care and that's costing money. And yes, there's money to be made every time a procedure is done. But I think as far as if we look at that longitudinally across a patient's lifespan, that they're, they're spending a lot more money than they need to. They could be making just money off of the premiums. But right now, the premiums aren't covering anything because people are accessing medical care at such a high level. And as you said, why do we take better care of our cars 
than we do ourselves. It's like, yeah, I mean, a car, we can sell and get a new one, a body, not right. so much. <laughs> not so much. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if you, if your check engine light comes on and you go to the mechanic and they lift the hood and snip the wire to the check engine light, they're like, there you go. The light's out. You're like, wait a minute, but what's wrong with the engine? But we accept that as a diagnosis or a treatment, a medication all day, every day. Yep. And that's a problem. You know, yep. when we, when we're not seeing our body as the divine mechanism that it is, that when it's expressing a symptom, physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual, that is to be listened to and interpreted as a sign of imbalance or dis-ease. And so, you know, I think that's a big part of the problem too, is that our current medical model is very suppressive, right? Antidepressant, anti-inflammatory, analgesic. It's going away from whatever the body's expressing as opposed to saying, hey, the body's having an inflammatory response here. What's causing the inflammation and how do we address that and help the body have a regulated inflammatory response? Because inflammation is like one of the most amazing things our body does. We don't want to suppress it on any level, but sometimes it gets you know, overexpressed. And the question then is why? Yeah, you see that all the time. You know, People would rather just accept a pill to quiet their symptoms instead mm -hmm. of diving in. So let's dive in a little bit. And what do you see as the pillars of health? And how can you make some recommendations that the listeners can take and mm -hmm. not only keep themselves healthy, but be proactive, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, go forward with prevention in mind versus, yeah. okay, well, you know, if something happens, I'll just go to the doctor and get a medication. So for me, the pillars of health are incredibly simple, but in our modern society, not always easy. Um, so water, <laughs> um, you know, let's start there and everyone's going to roll their eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should drink more water. And it's like, no, 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 really. <laughs> it's <laughs> what creates blood volume. It's what, you know, your liver and your kidneys are filters, you know, at the end of the day. So if you've ever gone camping and you're trying to filter water out of a sludgy pond, it's kind of gross. But if you go to a beautiful crystalline alpine lake and it's, it's easy to filter the water there, right? Because there's less sludge in the filter. So the easiest way to create less sludge in your filter is to add more water. Um, that's going to help your heart to beat faster because it has more blood volume. So in order for the blood to circulate, it doesn't have to beat so hard. Um, it's what's important for cell-to-cell -cell communication. It lubricates your joints. It helps to create the slip and slide of your digestive tube so that we can poop normally and receive nutrients from our food and get rid of the waste. So water, you know, just simple, simple hydration. Um, my general rule of thumb is take your body weight and cut it in half. And that's about how many ounces you should be shooting for a day. If you have for every hour of exercise, add another liter, add another 32 ounces of water for every cup of caffeine or alcohol, add two cups of water. So one to get back to baseline and one to hydrate. And so there's these simple, and these are vague formulas, but they're rules of thumb that can really help people become aware. And I can't tell you how many people sit in my office and that's one of the first, oh yeah, I know I don't drink enough water. And it's like, well, let's, let's start there. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm not mentally foggy and I'm not tired in the afternoon and my mood is more stable and I'm not eating as much. And it's like, 
yeah, you're, you're hydrated. <laughs> this is like basic foundation of health. So then correlate to that is, you know, what are we eating? And so, you know, and it's not just about whole organic foods, which I always advocate. Um, there's a lot of diets and you know, nutritional philosophies out there and there's merits in each one. Um, so I'm not going to go into a deep dive on all of those, but my general rule of thumb is eat food in its whole form and think about how it's been eaten traditionally and try that. So traditionally grains were sprouted before they were cooked or turned into flour. Traditionally dairy products were eaten in small amounts and fermented um, because there wasn't refrigeration. So, huh, something going on there. Soy, you know, if you look at Asian cultures was always fermented. Soy milk wasn't a big deal, but if it was around, it was fermented. Miso paste, tempeh, um, these are all fermented foods. Sweeteners were used sparingly because there weren't a lot of them around and we ate seasonally. So these are kind of just general rules around how to eat in a way that's going to feel nourishing to you. Um, some people like myself, I love eating meat. I was a vegetarian for 12 years. I didn't feel great. Well, it turns out I'm a blood type O and us O's in general do better with meat and veg and not so much on the grains and dairy. And so that's where I've like naturally gravitated over the years. And that's where I feel good. But just because that's where I feel good, that doesn't mean that's where somebody else feels good. And so you get to play with diets and nutritional advice in a light way, in a heart-centered way, rather than like, this is the cure. And this is, you know, it worked for the author of this book. And so it must be the answer. And, and there might be some wisdom in there for you. And if it's not a fit for you, like really listening to your body. So water, food, breathing into the belly, breathing deeply, um, slowing down, sweating, exercising, you know, the, all these things that incorporate more mindful breathing and breath work and just remembering to slow down a relatively quick modern pace and, and take a breath, you know, use your, use your cues, you know, at a stoplight or a stop sign, it's the world telling you to stop, take one deep belly breath and then hit the gas. You know, if your cell phone rings or text, take a deep breath, use it as a cue and then pick up the phone. Hello. You know, after you've had a deep breath, but there's all these cool triggers. So it's not necessarily about trying to like scrape and scrimp 20 more minutes out of your day for a breath work meditation practice. That might be really in flow for you, but why not flow in the fluidity of the day as it is and incorporate mindfulness and breathing through the day. You know, like I think about myself, like if I hike in the morning and then I sit in my office for the next eight hours, it's like great that I hiked, but I've got to have breaks in my day. So water, food, breath, movement, you know, I just think moving the body in a way that feels good and in a natural way and working out um, in whatever way that we want to do that is great, but natural organic movement is really important too. So walking, swimming, dancing, rolling, having sex, you know, that sort of thing. We move the body in a more organic way. And so I think that can be, is really important too. Our relationships are really important to look at. So our friendships, our partnerships, family, our colleague, peer relationships, these are all really important pieces to look at. And I think a lot of times we just don't even pay any attention because it is what it is. And these tend to be the primary stressors that cause us anxiety, insomnia, digestive upset, heart hurt, you know, heartbreak, heartache, grief, all these things. 
And so looking at our relationships and then our relationship to ourself, of course. And so I think this is probably the biggest piece that most humans, but certainly most Americans um, could use the most support with right now is just that permission to slow down and feel what we're feeling because we tend to be a very doing based society. And I think that's the anecdote for the brain being scared of the heart and not wanting to feel into it. And so the mind comes up with all these complex or very busy strategies to keep us distracted from whatever's true in our heart. So having enough self-awareness and enough compassion for ourselves that we're willing to allow ourselves to feel all that we're feeling. Thank you for that. That's a lot of food for thought, really, for the listeners going through what's really important. You mentioned in there movement, sweating, and in, in the larger prevention picture, not everybody has access to good quality food or good quality water. So talk a little bit about the importance of detoxification. So detoxification is really important just because there's so many environmental factors that we're all exposed to every day. Um, water, food, air, plastics, hormones, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then we, as a society, tend to enjoy caffeine, sugar, alcohol, cannabis, um, some of these other things that can, you know, kind of sludge up our pathways. And then if we're not eating, you know, a whole foods based diet, most of the time, then we can have, you know, sluggish digestion, where we're not really eliminating well, um, where toxins are building up and that sort of thing. So, you know, actively detoxifying your system can look a myriad of ways. There's just probably as many ways to detoxify as there are humans on the earth. And it's really about finding a a way that's good for you. I like to do like a formal detox in the, in the shoulder season. So in the spring and in the fall, but I'll take about seven to 10 days and just eat really lightly, just fruits and veggies and maybe a little bit of lean protein, but then moving out of that and then possibly doing some days of digestive rest where I'm only eating liquefied foods. So um, for me, I'm not a big fan of just juicing. I, that doesn't work well in my system because my blood sugar gets dysregulated, but I'll do some juice, some smoothies, some pureed soups, that sort of thing, broth. Um, so kind of keeping it really easy so my digestion can rest and, and we can just move some of the toxic waste out of our cells um, by burning some fat or by allowing the, the systems to rest so that they can eliminate and, you know, we want to talk about elimination. You know, we think about the digestive tract and that's true. That's a big way we can eliminate um, the urinary tract is another way we eliminate, but we often forget about the two other, what we call amunctories, which are pathways of elimination, which are the lungs. And so the lungs, and again, doing that breath and that breathing are really important to expel. If you've ever been around somebody who drank too much the night before, you can smell it on their breath. And then also the skin and the skin is our largest organ of elimination. And so really opening that up through skin brushing or sweating through sauna or sweat lodge or exercise or hot, cold dips or that sort of thing, you know, opening up the skin to allow it to breathe and eliminate that way is it can be helpful too. Let's go back to one of the other principles of treating the whole person. I know that you look a lot in your practice at mental health and anxiety. How does that play a role in our physical health and well-being? We've created these four quadrants of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, but we're really one being where, where each of these bodies are constantly influencing the others. And so mental health, anxiety, depression, 
depression, insomnia, um, compulsivity, uh, that sort of overwhelm. You know, these are all things that we are seeing really, really commonly, especially now our, our mental well-being is, is diminishing quite a bit. So, you know, that has a huge role on our physical health. So, you know, the, the gut is not only the seat of health, it's also the seat of our neurochemistry. So 80 to 90% of our neurochemicals, like our serotonin, our dopamine are in our gut system. Connection is incredibly important for our overall physical health and well-being, but certainly mental health and um, wellness as well. So Lisa and I happened to attend a talk with Joe Toscano who is somebody that used to work for Google and appeared in the movie, The Social Dilemma. So as we're talking about mental health issues, talk a little bit about how you see in some of your patients, how social media is affecting them, perhaps negative side effects of engaging in a lot of social media. Oh, goodness. I just, I feel like that's such a big area of conversation because it is having a huge impact on us on so many levels of our being. So physiologically, you know, looking at that screen, um, it actually impacts the light from it impacts the pineal gland, which is one of our master glands. And so that's going to have a big impact on our hormone production all the way down the cascade of hormones from mental health hormones, reproductive hormones, thyroid hormones, melatonin and sleep cycles, you know, on and on and on and on. The other thing that we've known for many, many years now is that every time we get a ping um, that somebody's called, emailed, Instagrammed, texted, whatever, we get a tiny little dopamine rush. And so this is the dopamine is really what has a lot to do with creating addiction. And dopamine's also an excitatory neurotransmitter that helps us feel awake and alive, but it also helps us feel satisfied with ourselves. It helps us feel rewarded and soothed as well. So when we have a bunch of dopamine hits a day, um, some people are in the hundreds or thousands of, you know, depending on how much we're engaging with social media, we're actually over time depleting those dopamine stores. And so that's going to leave us with more of a flat affect and not being able to take pleasure in the other things that might have brought us joy prior, you know, having tea with a friend, watching a sunset, having a piece of chocolate cake, you know, whatever it is that would bring us some pleasure, we're not feeling that. So there's an anhedonia or a lack of pleasure in the rest of the world. So then what do we do? We go back to the screens for that artificial hit of dopamine without doing anything like exercise or social connection, like face-to-face social connection that might replete or replenish those dopamine stores. And then on a heart level, I feel like the way people's lives are being portrayed or the way that they're portraying them is making all of our human neuroses even deeper because now we're looking at, oh, look at how easy she makes it or look at how much fun she and her kids have. And me and my kids are having this giant argument or I wasn't even able to get their shoes on this morning. And so I think it really deepens this lack of self-worth, this low self-esteem, this worry about, you know, as a human, so many of us share the worry of, am I enough? You know, am I lovable as is? I was running a retreat over the weekend and we were talking about taking selfies and I was talking about my friend who's got an app and it changed, it like makes her pupils bigger and it smooths out the lines on her face. Like when when she takes a selfie, it's like, there's this app that like, you know, Photoshops it, um, airbrush. 
And, um, and I'm like, wow, you're, cause your selfies always look nice. He's like, oh yeah, it's the app. But I didn't know that app existed. Right. So here I am thinking, wow, she just looks like she just got out of a spa every day, even like in the middle of her hike when she's shooting a selfie. And, I, and so I think it makes us like get where now we're getting negative on our self-image as well. Like, oh, I've got that wrinkle or my smile is funny or I don't know, fill in the blank of all the things that we pick apart about ourselves. So I think that it's shining a light on, on what we don't love about ourselves and, and our of self-worth. And so I hope that we can stop using it as a comparison tool and really go back to the original intention, which was really just sharing, but sharing more authentically and maybe posting when we're not having a great day or when we're, you know, you know, celebrating something or a picture that isn't perfect. You know, we, maybe it's just, we post the first one we took rather than the 17th one we took because finally we got it just right. And I think right now there's, you know, social media has been used to create a lot of division and a lot of false information. And that's worrisome. Thanks for that um, explanation of dopamine and flat affect, because that gives me some context for one of the things that Joe said in his talk when they were screening the movie, The Social Dilemma, you know, they said most audiences, there were thunderous applause at the end. And he said that he went into a high school. At the end of the movie, there was dead silence wow. because the children didn't know how to respond. And then they got very angry. Like, how could you do this to us? Mm -hmm. yeah. So thanks for that dopamine yeah. explanation. Well, it's like giving our children a little bit of cocaine every day from the time that they were born. And then at 16 or whatever, when the phones are getting in the way at the dinner table and of us having authentic connections with our children, you know, that you can't have this baggie of cocaine anymore. And they're like, well, what? I've only known life with a little bit of Coke. You know? <laughs> now you're telling <laughs> yeah. me it's not good for me, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of an extreme example, but not really. We get addicted and that's absolutely what's happening. You know, there's some kind of disturbing studies about mothers now who are nursing and rather than eye gazing with their baby and bonding with their baby, they're on their phone. And so it's really affecting attachment in infants because, you know, that time, because it's a lot of hours. If you ever nursed a baby, you know, especially in the first few months, it's a lot of your day sitting in that rocker with a little pillow under your arm. And, um, and I get the temptation of, you know, oh, I'm just going to scroll a little bit, but that's actually really sacred time that's evolutionarily created, not only to feed and nourish the baby on a physical level, but to feed and nourish the bond between the mother and the child. So, I think it's time we take a much closer look and consider disconnecting ourselves, at least at points in the day or times in your week where, you know, maybe go for a hike just to take a hike, not to post a picture about it, you know, because now it's like, am I having this experience of my life or am I just having this experience so I can post it and create a certain persona for myself? Well, you had talked about how naturopathic medicine is primarily focused on the gut health and digestion and those kinds of things. So it's like, yeah, what are we digesting constantly, mm. you know, with the media and social media? I watched The Social Dilemma back in September of 2020. And mm. immediately after that, I was like, okay, all social media is off my phone. I don't, I don't have any of that anymore. I don't have those dings. And mm -hmm. I, as soon as you said, it's like a dopamine thing. It's like, it is, it's like mm. you stop what you're doing and like, go pick up your phone, which yep. is 
very scary proposition for our health and well-being, as is what you talked about with the screen time and how that contributes to lack of sleep and and other problems that we have. Go back just a, a little bit about what it's like to have a relationship with your doctor at a different level than going in for a 10-minute visit and being like, okay, let's check the boxes. Let's write you a prescription. Let's send you for a test. Naturopathics uh, medicine has a different approach, as you said, the whole person. So like, what is it like for people to come and have an experience? My initial visit is somewhere between an hour and a half and two hours in length. And everyone's like, oh, that's so long. (laughs) That's a really long time. And it's like, until you get in here and then it's like, oh, are we at two hours already? I'm like, yeah, we've got to wrap up (laughs) because there's so much. We're such complex beings. There's so many aspects of what's going on in our world that if we take any one of these quote unquote symptoms out of context and in a vacuum, then we don't put the pieces back together. And I cannot tell you how many times just from telling someone's complete story in an unrushed way with someone who's genuinely interested in hearing it, that there how many insights come through just from putting the pieces back together oh, I didn't even realize that that came on right after that thing happened. Do you think this could be anxiety related? Do you think my gut stuff is, you know, from X, Y, and Z, you know, or, or, you know, I forgot that I had gone to Mexico and had that, you know, GI thing. And, you know, yeah, I mean, that could have set you up for SIBO or, you know, chronic infection or whatever. And so just putting the pieces of your life back together, I think in and of it's this healing. Um, there's a lot of really interesting research coming out about narrative medicine, which is the medicine of telling your story. And I think that's become really important too. And then just simply receiving empathy. And if I am in an empathetic and open state, we now know from the mirror neuron theory, which tells us that if my neurology and my neurochemistry is set up in a certain way and somebody's agitated, but I can stay calm and open, then their neurons will actually start to mirror what my neurons are doing. And so by simply me sitting in a, in a chair with empathy and compassion and open heart, creates more empathy and compassion in the person that I'm sitting with. And so it's really very healing just that initial visit. And then to realize that there's a reason that the body is expressing himself in this way, because so many people come in and they are frightened. Like my body is broken or haywire or acting all sorts of crazy. And there's no reason for this. I can't, everybody says, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to this. And then we start breaking it down and it's like, oh, actually it does come up at a certain time of the month, or it does come up, you know, every day at 10 o'clock at night, or it does, you know, whatever it's, oh, maybe it is after I eat gluten, but I haven't been paying attention. So we slow down and have enough time to build a relationship. You know, now the next time somebody comes in, I can say, well, didn't you have that thing with your mom? And it's, oh yeah, I didn't even think about that because we're living in our lives. We're living in the fishbowl of whatever the stress is. And so sometimes just having someone to bounce that off of is really helpful. That concludes part one of our conversation with Dr. Nicola Dellinger. Be sure to visit puravitahealthcare.com. And join us for part two of our interview to learn more about the facts and myths around medical research.
Thanks for listening to the show. We hope you enjoyed it. To hear more great conversations that elevate consciousness, be sure to hit the subscribe button. Join our community at epicconsciousliving.com and get your free health tip ebook. We make it easy for you to be epic. We've chosen to drink better water and pass on plastics. We've been using Berkey water filters for over 10 years, and we truly love the quality and taste of our water. We want to let you know that we have an affiliate relationship with Berkey. So if you choose to make a purchase through our link, we will receive a commission. Pass on plastics, drink better water, get peace of mind. EpicConsciousLiving.com backslash Berkey. That's EpicConsciousLiving.com backslash B-E-R-K-E-Y.